0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you doing today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I'm
1: doing great as always. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. You ever listen to Sirius XM? Hell yeah. Okay. All right.
1: Often. Uh, very, very often. And why do you ask?
0: <laughs> well, I ask because our very special guest today is from First Wave on the Sirius XM. What do you call it? Is it radio? It's Sirius not radio. XM satellite, satellite Radio. All right. We call it satellite radio still?
1: We call it Sirius XM and that is how it's known.
0: Okay. So, First Wave, Sirius XM, in the morning, the morning man,
1: Larry the Duck. Also of W-L-I-R, that was the Long Island, New York equivalent of KROQ back in the 80s.
0: Indeed it was. And he was the music director. So he helped shape the sound of the station. And um, it was uh, pretty comparable to K-Rock. Larry's got some great stories that we're going to get right into. We are talking about the year 1985. And we are looking at the top 106.7 songs that K-Rock played back in 1985 And we're doing this in 10 song chunks, and Larry's going to take songs 100 to 91. So we'll learn a little bit about K-Rock, and we'll learn a little bit about Larry, and we'll learn a little bit about the artists that were played.
1: And maybe we'll learn a little bit about ourselves as well. (laughs) Okay. Maybe
0: we will. (laughs) I don't know. Did I learn anything about you, Holly? We won't know until after. Ask me at the
1: end. Exactly. Ask me at the end.
0: All right. So let's get into it. This is Larry the Duck on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Let's just, uh, let's get right into it. We'll, we'll yeah, do, yeah, yeah. Thank you
2: for having me, Holly and Dave.
0: Yeah, so we have Larry the Duck Dunn with us, and we know you f- right now from First Wave. You're on SiriusXM's First Wave, but uh, the reason we would love to talk to you is because we like to hear WLIR stories, and um, we grew up on, on the West Coast listening to KROQ. I lived in New York for a year, yeah, a year or so, and I was hoping, when I was in New York City, I was hoping to get LIR because I'd heard all about this. <laughs> And the signal not that great in New York
2: no, City.
3: No,
1: great. That's why they that call thing. it Long Island. Yeah, <laughs> right. Long Island Station.
2: Right, and also LIR stood for Low Income Radio. We were not paid very much. <laughs> <laughs> it was for the beer. That's You're... about it. But the we were love influential. The music. Yeah, we were influential, and certainly there's a great movie that's. It's actually back on Showtime as of December 1st, and on Showtime on Demand, called New Wave Dare to Be Different. The film was originally called WLIR Dare to Be Different when it debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival about four years ago. And it won Best Documentary, and then Showtime picked it up and rebranded it. So it tells the whole story of LIR, soup to nuts, until it went off the air. Um, but my friends at KROQ, you know, it's interesting. When I was doing the morning show at LIR, poor man and I would put each other on the air. So he would be on the overnight on KROQ, and I'd be doing the morning show, and we put each other on live once a week. So I thought that was kind of like where East meets West comes together. And he was a great guy. We, we would just shoot the crap about music and stuff like that. What are you playing? What are you hearing? So um, we both influenced each other. I will say that. And Rick Carroll was a great, great programmer. When did you start
0: at LIR or what, what is your, let's, let's go back to.
2: I was born in Brooklyn and I I live (laughs) on Long Island. I started LIR as an intern. I was at St. John's university. I was in my junior year and I was hired by the music department um, after my internship ended. I got an A, which was nice. great. Yeah, It was actually a, it was kind of like a paid internship. It was a six-credit internship. And then within that first year, I evolved through the music department, the production department. That's where I learned my production skills because you were required. And we were a union shop, by the way. We were AFTRA, one of only two radio stations in Long Island that were AFTRA. So we were required to do two hours of production when we got off the air. So that's and, where I, pro- I got my production skills and production. This
0: is this is uh, legitimate. Social this cutting. is this is like this uh, is the, the grease analog. pen. Using yeah. the grease pen, yeah.
2: This is the razor blade with the <laughs> side swipe on the tape. Yeah, that's like uh, with two track.
0: Oh yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So then, um, in my first year, um, I started going on the air, and then I got my first shift on June first, nineteen seventy nine, which uh, I celebrated my fortieth on. First Wave on Sirius XM. I did a segment called 40 for 40, which was my favorite 40 songs for 40 years. Oh, nice. And that aired two years ago. And I've been on Sirius XM for the last 19 years on First Wave, um, right. Monday through Friday and on Saturday. All right. Spoiler alert. What was number one? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's great you mentioned that, because I didn't really do them in order. Oh, okay. But the song <laughs> I started with was Killing Joke 80s, because oh. I had to start there. It just... just seemed like an anthem for the time, right? So that's that was the song that kicked off. The 40 for 40. I made it clear that I didn't put them in any order. I just put them in kind of a thematic order. Do you okay, th- well, what do you was th- one
1: of your favorites, then, of the, of the 40?
2: Of the 40? The Blue Nile the- from Scotland, Tinseltown, Lorraine. God, that's such a song that people, I don't know. They probably missed it. I used to play it on an import show on Sunday night. So I was the music director of L.I.R. So I, I hosted a, an import show, Imports from Around the World, and that was one of the imports that I played on Sunday night at 10 o'clock. Music director we set up a contract with Rough Trade Records in London so the idea was to take the best imports and ship it Heathrow to JFK so my staff (laughs) would meet it on Thursday we also had another importer on Long Island Rockville Center called Dutch East India so between the two importers I would start going through the boxes and I was like the human filter and then Dennis McNamara was the program director and I every Monday morning would do the music meeting and we'd decide what to add what not to add and things like that there was one time that I did get a 12 inch and it was a white label and it was a magic marker in black. It said M A R R S. And I put the needle on it, it was pump up the volume. Mm-hmm. And I went, Holy shit. And I said, Dennis, we got to play this like pronto. And I did a dance show at the Malibu nightclub in Lido Beach on Saturday nights, it was on the south shore of Long Island. Club that held about 2,000 people. That's where YouTube performed on the last night of the October tour. That's that famous bootleg that's out there that L I like R broadcast live. And I put it on the dance floor and the dance floor went nuts. So we put it on the air. We had to drop the call letters into the song because we didn't want the other radio stations to <laughs> copy it and rebroadcast it. I remember And that. it wasn't even signed. I mean, that was the beauty of LIR. We were just doing A&R in music and we didn't call ourselves a new wave station. We were the new music station. That's uh-huh. what we did. That's, that was the beauty of it. What I'm exciting- sure there were
1: as many surprises uh, in, as, because as we go back to the old K-Rock you know, top songs of the year, there are songs that we, I mean, we grew up listening to it, but we didn't remember. And we thought, well, this doesn't seem, you know, it was new music, but it wasn't new wave. And there were some surprises for sure.
2: Yeah, there was some, so- I mean, there were songs that I think Kara Q championed in bands, you know, like drama Rama, you know, we're mm-hmm. on the East coast at LIR. We would champion a band from Scotland called APB. So we play like shoot you down rainy day, but that wasn't really played on the West coast. So wow. they were kind of like regional hits as opposed to kind of like underground national hits, but we had synergy between the two. And a lot of people wonder, where did I get my name? I did model it after Jed the fish. I'll be honest. And Jed knows it <laughs> because uh, I was Larry Dunn, but they called me duck Dunn on the air after Donald the duck Dunn, who was the, he was the bass player for uh, Booker T and the MGs hey. and the blues brothers, right? He was the guy that played the bass and smoked the pipe in those days. So they used to call me Duck Dunn, which I hated. So I just knew about Jed. And I said to Dennis at the time, I was doing full-time radio at that point. I said, why don't I just flip it? It's like a ratings thing. People remember nicknames. They don't remember real names. And then when I got to Sirius XM 19 years ago, I said, can I go back to my real name? They said, well, they don't know you by your real name. Right. Right. So I'm stuck duck with the curse he- of a duck, you know, Holly and Dave, I don't know. Now that's But Jed, Jed was an influence, you know, Jed. I mean, I, we used to look, to be honest, we would listen to air checks yeah. of all the jocks at Karo Q because we were interested in their style. It was different. You know, the way Rick Carroll set up that clock. Um, I think the last song of every hour was like a jock pick, you know, like they could pick their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just doing this all from memory. So forgive me if my facts are wrong, but Karo Q was a great influencer. So was L.I.R. Uh, Rodney, God bless him. You know, I mean, he he set off a revolution in the seventies when you know the ramones were breaking when punk was breaking you know and joey ramone was a friend of mine i was just reminiscing you know ronnie Spectre passed away yesterday and I, I think back to when you know phil specter produced the ramones and then joey produced ronnie and yeah. they did those songs together in that ep in 1999 and i would hang out in joey's apartment because the ritz which is now webster hall be around the block from joey's apartment on the lower east side and he used to, he had carte blanche to go in and i used to host bands there like friday nights and saturday nights sometimes. And he'd say, let's kick back and have a beer. And a few of us would go back to his apartment. And his mom lived in the apartment right above him. she just wander in. So you got to realize this is clean fun. You know, we're just having yeah. a beer, nothing more than that. And Joey, God bless him. I miss him. But I, I was thinking about Joey yesterday when I heard Ronnie Spector died.
0: What a great yeah! I can both, wander, both of those, by the way. right? Yeah, I, no, no, that's my fine. Brain
2: goes like all over the place.
0: No, that's great. Because, no, we'd yeah.
1: rather hear the stories. Yeah, when
0: you, I mean, when you listen to the Ramones, it's it's yeah. clear that they're they're doing their version of the Ronettes. It's great, you know.
2: Oh yeah, and that Phil Spector <laughs> sound just comes through, right? You know, I think um, you know now that we have U2X Radio on Sirius XM, I I'm starting to discover U2 songs that I forgot about it or didn't even know about. I didn't even realize that YouTube covered Beat on the Brat by the Ramones. What a great song. Beat on the Brat <laughs> with a baseball bat. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that. <laughs> oh, you got to hear that. Oh. oh, YouTube's version of that is great.
0: All right. I'm dropping that in right now. One, two,
3: three, beat on the Brat. Beat on the Brat. Beat on the Brat with a baseball bat. is
0: Get to the meat of this show right so we're looking at the songs uh, we've been counting down we started 1980 now we're in 1985 once a year we we look at the 106.7 songs that k-rock played just because it's fun and a lot of lost classics so uh you get uh 100 to 91. so oh, okay yeah so we're gonna these are the these are the songs where um that k-rock deemed back you know 40 years ago however long ago this was you can kind of get a sense of what uh, K-Rock was into in, in as we do these 10-song chunks of uh, what exactly, what type of weird radio station this was. And you can kind of compare it with, with what, uh, you know, LIR was doing. So the first one, we go to number 100, Flash in the Pan, Midnight Man. This was a band, not necessarily a Flash in the Pan. I mean, they were, they started out in the 70s with Hey St. Peter. And I guess they were a little big in Australia. Were you? Are you and then they they're playing this Midnight Man song. What, did you, yeah, do, you song? <laughs> do you know this song? You know, I'm I, sure you know Flash in the Pan, but uh, what can you give? What can you tell us?
2: I remember Midnight Man, and I I do remember the video because it was kind of like a cheesy New Wave video. Like you saw the hair, and it 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 kind of looked. They were all like cheesy. Early days. All of, of New them were Wave, cheesy. You
0: know? Yeah, all of those videos were cheesy. So you know.
3: <laughs>
2: totally. No, I know. But, you know, Flash in the Pan had two former members of the Easy Beats, right? So the Easy Beats were a pretty well-known band. Um, and coming out of Australia in 1976, there was a whole scene in Australia that was happening during that time. If you think about it, right? Flash in the Pan in 1976, you had NXS, who wasn't called In Excess in 1977 when they started. They were called the Farris Brothers because there were three Farris Brothers and they evolved <laughs> into NXS. And also in 1977, you also had Ice House, but they weren't known as Ice House. They were known as Flowers. So you had these. You had this whole uh, Australian music scene that was developing in '76 and '77. So that's where kind of like Flash in the Pan came in, and it actually was a really good dance song. You know, when I think back to Midnight Man, yeah, great song. So it was Hey Saint Peter too.
0: spinning in clubs what was the clubs you were spinning
2: so in the clubs when i was spinning right around 1980 was well it was always the malibu nightclub in Lido beach it was paris Mm -hmm. new york it was the underground in new york the limelight somewhat the ritz in new york which is now webster hall um god there was sprats there was sprats on the water there were a number of clubs that there were a lot of clubs you know there were a lot of clubs that were popping up and i think in those days, you know, before the AIDS epidemic hit, and and you know certainly the drinking rules were a lot less. I mean, more people were drinking and driving, and you shouldn't be doing that. But as things got tighter, the club scene started to kind of wean down. So, but the eighties were that was that was decadence. That was that was the <laughs> period. You know, that was the time that I was spinning in the clubs up until about nineteen ninety four. And in nineteen ninety six, the Malibu shut down, and I got a call from the two owners of the Malibu, Charlie and Tony Greco, and they said, Larry. Saturday night's the last night. You got to do this. You got to spin live on the air because I was live on the air in LIR, and I'd be live in the club, which was kind of dangerous. There was no seven-second delay, and uh, three thousand people showed up, you know, and drank the place dry. That was the last night of me spinning in a club.
0: So even though we couldn't hear you in in the city, that you were still you were you were in those in Manhattan playing. Mm -hmm doing those clubs yeah so that, yeah that's that's cool More
2: one-offs in the in manhattan yeah consistent on long island but more one-offs in the city oh, okay
0: so now we go to something completely different this is phil collins i don't know if you're familiar with this artist uh, <laughs> but he had he was in 1985 you know we couldn't escape him so this you know don't lose my number billy don't lose my number who'd you prefer billy or ricky who shouldn't lose the number <laughs> or oh, or Millie Van or Millie Vanilli was uh, don't forget my number. There were uh... don't forget my number. <laughs> yeah. sure. or Ricky
2: don't lose my number. Steely Dan, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because Phil Collins always said about the lyrics that they were completely improvised and he had no idea what they really meant. <laughs> if you think about it, right? Because it was from his album No Jacket Required. What I loved about Phil Collins during that time period was that Earth, Wind, and Fire horn section that backed him up. Right? right. That's you know like Paper Late, and you think about those songs that just. They just went to a whole new level with Earth, Wind, and Fire. I'm a huge Earth, Wind, and Fire. Sure. Uh, you were in, in the fact,
0: band, right? Wasn't that you?
2: <laughs> Larry Dunn, the
3: keyboard player. Oh. Yeah. Yeah.
2: With the hair like this. Yeah. <laughs> I wish from your lips to God's ears I was Larry yeah. Dunn in Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> but, you know, Phil, kind of, that was a great video. And it was kind of like the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was kind of set in he, that Western setting. He, but, did, uh, he
0: did have a great sense of humor. And that's, uh, you know, I, I do... if. If you watch the rewatch the video, they have like the, the pretentious director who comes in and just kind of throws yep. out some some names. I, I do as I re rewatched it, the first as he throws out some sort of Western, the first thing out of Phil Collins' mouth is the Alamo. And now we know like, oh yeah, of course. He's he's like this intense collector of Alamo artifacts.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a great video. I liked how the director came in at the beginning and they just throw, you know, names back and forth. You know, <laughs> until they got to Ronald Reagan, then they kind of looked at each other. I thought it was Pretty indicative of that period in the '80s, right? No empty. <laughs> no politics aside, of course.
0: Okay, so did LIR play Phil Collins? Would, was this something you might hear on the station? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah okay. we
2: played. Yeah, in the early 80s, we played Phil. Phil came up, actually, and there's a, on YouTube, and he sadly just passed away, um, and he was the music director, him and Rosie Pisani before I was music director of LIR. Um, Ray White interviewed Phil Collins, um, and Phil was late. For the interview i think when you start seeing ray he was kind of annoyed because he really wanted to do the interview and he was on two to six and he didn't want the guy after him to do the <laughs> interview but he did the interview and and phil i've met phil collins a few times he's the most down-to-earth guy you'll ever meet he's really like i never really sensed this sense of ego with him and um it's on youtube it's ray white interviewing at wir phil collins and it was during that time too as paper and um you know, some of those songs were being developed. You know, post Genesis. You know, I remember in the interview he said that Genesis was his wife, his solo material was his mistress, and I thought that was an interesting analogy. That's yeah. in the interview. Indeed, that's a good description.
0: Yeah.
2: Don't tell yeah. my wife that.
1: Though. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's very good. He he was so clever. I, this was one of those ones that surprised me uh, to find on K Rock that year. I don't I don't know why. I mean,
0: well, because Phil Collins kind of, you know, was Genesis. Well, no, I mean, he, well, I guess later on, he just became like this AC adult AC guy, just doing yeah. these ballads. And so then when you look back, uh, you know, 40 years, like you forget, like, oh yeah, he, he kind of had some street cred back then. Like he's the, the guy from Genesis. This is solo work. This is, you know, you got to play this.
1: It was pretty poppy though.
0: Yeah. Well, this was the first of two songs that are on the K rock yeah. chart. So that, you know, they, they played yeah. a couple of Phil Collins from No jacket yeah. required as did the entire nation talking to Larry, the duck, from Sirius XM's first wave, counting down the songs from 1985 on K-Rock, but time to take a break, so let's do that.
1: with Larry the Duck on the What Difference Does It Make podcast.
0: Okay, so let's go up to number 98. Squeeze comes back together. They they reunite after three years and uh, they have this song called Hits of the Year. Is this something you remember?
2: I do remember it very well. Actually, the the part that I do remember, because if you think about their biggest hit was actually Black Coffee in Bed. And Hits of the Year was kind of like, it was a song about a holiday flight, like being on holiday, but it gets hijacked, the plane, so they had to react to that. And it's interesting you mentioned about the breakup because I mentioned the Malibu nightclub in Lido Beach. My most embarrassing moment was actually walking in. Well, I introduced Squeeze at the Malibu. They did a club appearance. And when I went, you know, what you normally would do after you would introduce a band, you'd watch the band. And then you go back to the dressing rooms. Hey guys, great show. And I walk into the dressing room and there's Chris Difford and Glenn Tilba crying. Chris and Glenn were crying because they just made the decision to break up the band. And I walked into that moment and I was like, Oh, wrong moment. (laughs) So um I do remember the period before that song. And they had a lot of fun, I think, with that video. It was a very uppity, you know, kind of song. You know, off to the airport, checking the bags, going on holiday, and the flight gets hijacked.
1: Wait, so, go back, going back to you walking in on their moment, so you could yeah. have been the one to keep them together. You could have talked them back, God. talked them
2: into staying together. Guys, guys, <laughs> what is it? Group hug, come on, let's regroup. Group yeah, hug, come on, come what, on. Come what, on. What, you didn't mean it, right? You didn't what are you it. doing here? <laughs> and I've had Chris and Glenn on, on my show on First Wave. And uh, actually, you know, when I had them on the air was when the album Spot the Difference came out, because Spot the Difference was when they were trying to reclaim their music royalty, you know, the rights, and they actually had to re record every song to re-establish their royalties. And it was interesting, like I said to Chris Different, I said, so what's the difference between this version attempted and that version attempted? He goes, nothing, there's no difference. Even got Paul Carrick to redo the vocal again. I mean, they recreated the song like note for note to reclaim their music rights, which is what spot the difference. That was the last time I had Chris and Glenn on the air. And uh, it was a great moment. Were you able to spot the difference? No,
0: <laughs> really? Okay. It Sounded the same to me. Did it? Okay, because yeah. a lot of times you hear it and like, nah, yeah. it's it's not the same. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of bands are doing that. Have to do it. Just yeah. you know, ta- ask Taylor Swift.
2: She's. Right,
1: and no, I appreciate <laughs> that that why they're doing it, and they yeah. should.
0: <laughs> all right, so now I, you know, K Rock was playing a lot of adult songs. It yeah. seems like 1985 was the year that uh, that uh, alt rock kind of grew up because uh, all of a sudden, you know, we got Phil Collins and we're playing Mister Mister Broken Wings. <laughs> which was, I mean, it was a number one smash. It was number one for a couple of weeks in, in 1985. Were you guys all over this as
2: well? You know, we didn't really play it at LIR because at that point we had to make a musical decision. The way Dennis always said it was that if if you are t- if you have two legs on two skates and the skates are starting to drift apart, at some point you have to make a decision musically which path you're going to take. Yeah, I mean, we love the song. Um, if you think about it, Richard Page was the lead singer and the bass player of the of the band. He was also a session musician for Quincy Jones, right? And this is a band that was formed in Phoenix. They moved to Los Angeles. And they also wrote songs, you know, for Michael Jackson and Rick Springfield and Donna Summer and Kenny Loggins and Al Jarreau. And that wasn't the musical direction I think L.I.R. was going in that time. So as much as we love the song, I think it would have really turned a lot of heads if we had played it as great of a song as it was because that was not the musical direction that we were going. I mean, how do you put 80s killing joke next to Broken Wing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of hard to make that. Yet there reaches a point when you're a music director and you're a program director, you got to make a hard choice. You know, there was a hard choice I remember Dennis had to make because he was good friends with Billy Joel. And if you remember the song um, Still Rock and Roll to Me, you know, Billy wrote that song hoping that Alara would play it. How you know, because he yeah. goes, new wave, dance craze, it's all rock and roll to me. And, and the same with Mr. Mr. and Broken Wings. But we just had to make a decision at that point. It was a gut check. And uh, as great a song as it was, and I'm, I know karaoke Q played it, um, it was hard for us to play it on LIR in New York. I think we went out of revolution. Baby,
3: don't understand Why we can't just to each other's hand. juice.
0: So going in the other direction, um, yeah. what, you know, rap was getting, was huge. Def Jam, that was New York yeah. based. Where, where's L.I.R.
2: jumping on any, like L, L.L. or Run DMC or any of that? Great. I mean, great question. Because yes, Run DMC, Grandmaster Flash. I mean, the Beastie Boys, I mean, we broke cookie puss. In fact, <laughs> I did a, an interview with, I don't know if you realize that the Beastie Boys actually had a girl in the band. Oh, so yeah. So there were really four of them, right? So, and I had all four in the studio. And I remember Rick was was behind the board he took the tape on me too. I don't have a recording of the Beastie Boys but but yeah, we were playing, you know, we were playing Grandmaster Flash and Run DMC. We were mixing it in, you know, and we were trying to do as best of a balance as we could in that time period through the 80s. And and your
0: audience uh, I guess was accepting of that cuz I, I you know, I I know MTV was uh, a little hesitant to, uh, to add some some of this music at first and so uh, it's nice to know that
2: LIR was on it. Well, if you think about a song like Rapture from Blondie, right? So mm-hmm. how did they learn about rap? They, they learned by getting on the subway, going up to the Bronx, and hanging out in Grandmaster Flash's apartment. By the way, Grandmaster Flash is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think in 2008, mm-hmm. he got inducted. So if you think about the power of rap and how it was being developed and how it influenced a punk band like Blondie, that they, they changed their musical direction to go into that, that vein. All because they were influenced by one guy in the Bronx. And I, I think yeah. that speaks volumes. And we were gravitating to it because the clubs were pra- gravitating to it. If the clubs were playing, f- playing it, that was the difference between us playing Mr. Mr. and not playing Mr. Mr. Yeah. Are they playing Mr. Mr. in the clubs? Is there a dance remix of it? Right? Like dancing in the streets from Bruce Springsteen is an interesting experiment because he actually put out a dance mix of it and we played it for like 24 hours and then realized eh, I don't think it's gonna fly. <laughs> But we tried, yeah. right? You can't, you know, failing to try, selling a win. So we tried.
1: Any complaint? Was there any any feedback on it or was it just your decision? It just didn't work?
2: Dennis and I both felt it wasn't going to work. It was just at the end of the day, the last thing you have is your instinct, right? And your gut. Yeah. And yeah. if your gut says, no, you got to go with your instinct. I mean, we were working 20-hour days, sleeping four hours a day, you know? So it was, it was hard in those days to really make the right call. And you had, of course, the record label people banging down your door, independence, you know, everyone, all these labels had a marketing plan. We had, we did not want to adhere to their marketing plan. And (laughs) in one case, in example. So I remember the guy from IRS records bringing up Mike Mills from REM, right? And I'm on the air and I'm the music director and he's got the one I love. He's bringing up the single, right? He doesn't know I bought the album document (laughs) out of England from Rough Trade. I got the album, the guy walks in He goes, hey, man, here's the new single. I said, that's great. I got the new album. He goes, what? I said, I got the album. Mike Mills like, this is cool. And the IRS guy goes, well, I'm going to do a cease and desist. I said, do what you want. I paid for the album. Yeah. We played the whole friggin' album with Mike Mills on the air. Pissed off IRS records. And that was the beginning of when record labels started to determine simultaneous releases between North America and Europe. Because they were coming out in Europe before. And what were we doing? We were buying it in advance. And there was nothing they could do about it. So they had to change their marketing strategy. But we weren't, if you notice, right, a record label has a marketing strategy and they wanted us to fit to it. We didn't give a shit about what their marketing strategy was. We only cared about the audience. We didn't care about the ratings. Screw that. We cared about the advertisers because the advertisers came to us because we had the audience. No one else was doing in New York what we were doing. And that was tri-state because we moved the signal Actually, to Queens, we went to the top of the North shore <laughs> Towers on the Queens Nassau border. So we boomed into Connecticut. We were the number one station in Stamford, Connecticut. We went into Westchester, we went into somewhat in New Jersey and and Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to stand with on one foot with That's the what, antenna this way. <laughs> that was me. To yeah, make it work, but <laughs> we tried. You know, we were a Class A, three thousand watt radio station. Nice. We was, did the best we could.
0: Yes. Okay. So now we were. We've been talking about dance songs, like songs that uh, you know remixes. Finally. We get to a song that's an actual dance song. This is Susie and the Banshee's City and Dust. I'm sure you must have played this at the Limelight and the Ritz and all these places,
2: right? It's my favorite Susie song, to be honest. And uh, I have like three remixes of it. Um, The remixes are actually really cool. The bands used to tell me that the fun in the studio is doing the longer version the angst was getting to the three minute and 40 second version that radio would play. Right. And yeah. so in a case of cities and dust, the remix is really, I mean, what budgie does with the drums is really, really cool. And he stretches it out. Um, it's what I think their best dance song. It's my favorite song from Susie and the Banshees. I mean, it was from their seventh album, mm-hmm. Tinderbox, And uh, it's all about what happened to Pompeii right after yeah. the volcano blew up in 79 AD and everything, Though I think there's some references to cocaine and things like that in there too <laughs> sure. it's, an it's an 80's song you to. 80's song yeah. you know, decadence and all that stuff I've always played it in the clubs. I always get a lot of requests for it. You know, we think in beats per minute, and I think it's somewhere around 106 beats per minute. So, because uh, we were using vinyl, right? So I would always put things in beats per minute. So I would have some kind of feel or flow of how to build the dance floor up when you got to New Water, Blue Monday at 132 beats <laughs> per minute, right? And that's a that's little secret of DJs. Today, they use hard drives, right? And in yeah. those days, vinyl, vinyl, vinyl. So I still have my 12-inch, version of cities and dust from Susie and the Banshees, is one of the greatest songs ever.
3: I,
1: I have to agree with you. And it's hard to, you just said this is their seventh album. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine by 1985. I mean, I know she's been around for
2: a long, long time, but uh, and even before Susie. Uh, well, think about it. You know, when she was in London, she was best friends with Billy Idol kind of growing up and a little secret about Billy Idol. I didn't know until he played the Jones beach theater on Long Island. He said on stage and it had to be over 10 years ago. He said, great to be home on Long Island. I'm like, home on Long Island? And it it ended up, he did live in Patchogue, New York for about two to three years on the south shore of Long Island because his dad moved the family from England to Patchogue and then back to England. But Billy and Susie were best friends, you know, during that, as the punk scene was really starting to take off, you know, it was all in the family. And uh, yeah, Susie Sue, she's great. I love her voice. Did you ever
0: make a trip abroad during this time while you're a music director to kind of soak up the scene?
2: Um, once I did. Yeah. Dennis did the deal with, um, with rough trade though. I did spend time, I think with a lot of the fellow DJs, whether it was, um, live one Oh five in San Francisco, the Carol Q folks, the 91 X folks, we'd get together at the Gavin convention in February, which was always in San Francisco. And I was always proud of, of going out there. And, uh, it was kind of like being around your fellow wizards. Yeah. And by the way, Holly females can be wizards too. Uh, (laughs) It's not a male thing at all. But the, the two most proud, well, three, there were three proud moments for me in radio. I got music director of the year in 1987 and 1988 at the Gavin convention. And um, that really spoke volumes because I I didn't. Th- I thought the other music directors, you know, like Larry at Carol Q or Bruce at FNX in Boston, I thought, you know, they deserved it. And then the other one I got was radio announcer of the year by Billboard magazine for a media market. Howard Stern got it for a large market. It was like small market, medium market, you yeah. so. So that And that was in 1986, so I enjoyed that. But, you know, seeing the other DJs, you know, always was like being in a club. Like being at Sirius XM, though we're not all together right now because of COVID, but when I would be in the hallways, you know, I'd run into Mark Goodman, you know, I'd run into, you know, Laurie Majewski, into Sway. Yeah, I mean, you run into people and you just get into a conversation. Demos on the spectrum. I mean, these are all friends, you know. Um, yeah. Jim Kerr, you know, it's just we are who we are. And it's interesting, Jim once said something on the radio, maybe you, you I think you two would agree with this, that we think in microseconds, right? There's something about our brains, the way they're programmed. Like, why does, the, why does your brain go off a split second before the alarm goes off? Because it's programmed to know that it's time, right? Yeah. If you say to do something in 10 seconds, we know to do it at 9.5, right? It's just programmed in us, right? It's just the way it goes. Yeah. Scary, isn't it?
0: Do you get the dreams of being locked out of your, out of the studio and the, the record's about to end? Uh, You you have that dream. Okay. Yeah. Just check. I actually
2: had it two nights ago. It's that (laughs) DJ nightmare dream, you know, where you have nothing queued up and you're on the air and you're outside the door and the song ends. And what do you do now? Right now? Yeah. Like now. (laughs) That's what I said to people that I work. You guys have no idea what real pressure is. Real pressure is like when you get dead air, like to us then at that point, Five seconds. That's that's like eternity. Forever. And then I say, you know, in the NBA, it takes eight seconds to bring the ball over to half court. But for us, eight seconds is an eternity, right? <laughs> eight seconds of dead air would get you fired.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: In some radio stations. <laughs> Not with us, you know. So two, they would think it's just part of the song. Like the song went away, it came back.
0: <laughs> two days ago. That's amazing. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> I know <laughs> to we. To another ha- essential. Know- this is a uh, this is the Eurythmics. Love you like a ball and chain. This was kind of a pivot from the from the Eurythmics. This is no longer they're no longer a synth band. They're they're adding a little Motown, a little uh, some guitar, a little uh, a little more fun to uh, to their sound. What do you think of 1985's Eurythmics?
2: Well, I think Annie and David are a funky there, you know. Yeah. And, and this album was actually recorded in Paris, and uh, there's a funny story behind it that Dave Stewart has told that he actually used his mom for the sound effects in the song so there's there's a part of the song where you hear the stomping on the gravel and in paris there was like this youth club and he brings his mom up to the roof where they have this loose gravel and he's making his mother like shuffle her feet into the gravel which is what part of the the backbone of the song is and and her mother was like getting red in the face and it was (laughs) (laughs) it's actually a pretty funny story you know and and annie and dave you know, being together for so long, you know, they didn't actually speak for like 30 years. And I give uh, my good friend, Laurie Majewski, a lot of credit uh, a few years ago, they decided for the first time in 30 years to sit in the same room together and do an interview with Laurie. And they were like laughing, like it was old times all over again. So uh, Laurie brought the best out of them, but for years they never they never really talked or They never really spoke. But, you know, I love you like a ball and chain is a really, you know, cool, funky song. And, and you're right, mm-hmm. right? Dave, he was, they were kind of departing a bit from where they were as like a pure synth band or a duo with, you know, great vocal yeah. from Annie and Dave doing it. And, and he's a genius. I mean, he I've interviewed him before. He's a very down-to-earth guy, very smart. I mean, think about it. On his resume, he could say that he worked with Ringo Starr and he worked with Mick Jagger. He worked with The Stone, he worked with The Beatle, and he's worked with many, many artists in different types of uh, genres. Uh, in fact, once I saw him in the lobby of the Sirius XM building... He was just standing by himself. No one Ugh. even knew who he was, yeah. and he was there because he had produced another artist who I can't remember. But he was there just to support the artists that he produced. He wasn't there as Dave Stewart, the musician, or Dave Stewart of Eurythmics. Or he's worn many hats. And uh, hopefully they'll get back together again. But yeah, I love you like a ball and chain. Great song from Dave and Annie and Eurythmics.
1: be the best life for for someone like him because he's gotten to do what he has loved to do his entire career and he can still walk down the street in most places
2: oh absolutely yeah. yeah yeah
1: and she can do anything with her voice i would listen to anything by her i mean she's so i think she's
2: versatile she's got the range and the octaves certainly to um to widen the net you know sometimes they say as you get older the voice constricts a bit mm-hmm. and it may not be as flexible as when you were younger but I think her voice is still as strong as it's ever been. I think they were a great couple. I mean, there were a lot of duos, right, coming through the 80s. You had Yaz, right? You had Vince Clark and Mm Alison Moyet. Then that evolved into Erasure. You know, I even think about a New Jersey band called Anything Box. A lot of duos. OMD, Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. Heaven 17 stars a trio, now they're a duo. Uh, Naked Eyes, you know, which was uh, interesting because Kurt and Roland were in the same band with them, and they they kind of felt, they went to Tears of Fears and... Rob and Pete continued on his naked eyes. But the duo thing I thought was always interesting during the 80s, right? Because one's doing all the, you know, the instruments in the background, like the Pet Shop Boys, right? Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you missed the Pet Shop focus. Boys. Yeah,
2: I was trying to get there. You know, I, I thought I lost that brain cell for a second, but I got it back. It's amazing how it disappears, comes back. Because <laughs> we lived through the 80s. That's what happened. It, yeah. it was there, left, and it came back yeah. miraculously. I didn't kill that brain cell. Of
0: course, Wham! Come on, you got your Wham! wham? You yeah. got Go West! You Go got, West was supposed
2: mm-hmm. to be the next Wham. I remember that. You got yeah, your Hall. First you first got first your first. Oats. It's to be the next Wham. <laughs> oh yeah. You
0: uh, you were at the station when you you first heard the Eurythmics. I mean, what did you think? Like, oh my God, this is something new, or what? Do you remember like finding? I remember. The I remember
2: those early days, Sweet Dreams, and and it's amazing how songs evolved from alternative underground college radio to mainstream to Mm -hmm. top 40, you know? So we would always say like, we're the leaders, they're the followers, right? You know, we're the innovators. They're not. So, so wait a (laughs) second, because they have, they have, you know, independent consultants, you know, they have research and focus groups. We had none of that. Our focus group was the dance floor. If it worked on the dance floor, it's going to work on the radio.
1: And like you said, your gut.
2: (laughs) Holly, it's always your gut. At the end of the day, because what else do you have left, right? It's your instinct because you go through years of experience and you go with your ears. Like we were never hired at LIR to be. It wasn't the voice. I mean, you had to have somewhat of a voice, but I had a dreaded Long Island accent. (laughs) The Long Island. And I I spent two years cleaning it up on my own dime because I'm the oldest of seven. And my dad was a New York City fireman for 38 years. He actually was a professional Mm -hmm. ball player for a few years prior to that. He was a two years with the Brooklyn Dodgers, one year with the Yankees in their triple A team farm team. um, And then went to Korea instead of going to Korea during the Korean war. When he got drafted, he went to uh, Europe and the army used him as a pitcher because he was a pitcher and he came back and he couldn't throw anymore. So Mm. we didn't have much money, you know, growing up. The, the one good thing is that um, I was not a ball player because in the gene pool, I went through a meeting, my son, (laughs) and uh, my son actually got a full baseball scholarship as a pitcher To Hofstra University, which is Division One baseball, so at least my dad was able to teach him the sport (laughs) rather than me. Me, I just went to the radio side with my ear, rather than the baseball side with my arm. Such a huge disappointment.
0: It's
1: the equivalent. Oh,
2: (laughs) but the point is, we weren't hired for our voice. We were hired for our music knowledge and the ability to have fun because you couldn't fake fun. The listener is not stupid. The listener will always know if you're not having a good time or. Or all those DJs. Hey, how are you? It's Sunday in the Big Apple, you know. Hey, <laughs> that's not what we do. It's the idea was always to talk to people or talk with them, right? Not talk at them. And radio was always meant, as you both know, one to one, me and you, you and me. And I think you know when you have someone alone in a car, and they're listening and they're hearing something for the first time, and it's like, whoa. What was that? And that's before we had the satellite radio that would scream, you know, it would have across the screen the name of the song, yeah. the name of the band, right? Yeah. So you get to a, a song, you know, like, um, what was that one song that Duran Duran did? They did a lot. We used to call it the morning after song. <laughs> it was like a pill. It was about a one-night stand. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, oh, save a prayer. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Brain cell yes. is That's okay. Back. <laughs> yeah, so save a prayer from Duran Duran. They used to call it the morning after song you know, like a pill. Yeah. Cause it was like all about a one night stand, but no one knew what it was called. Right. In those days. So they would go by what they thought the name of the song was. And then they were were like, what the hell is this morning after
0: song? All right. So let, let's just say, you know, you were playing sweet dreams by Eurythmics. You're the first to play it. Okay. Now it's been played a thousand times. It's played all over New York. Everyone knows the song. Does LIR still play
2: it? So great question. The answer is yes. Cause a great song is a great song is a great song. But, there's a way to kind of mix it up. You don't play the 45 version or you don't play the version that Top 40s mm-hmm. playing. You go to a different mix of it. You go to a mix that they will go, holy crap, where'd that come from? I've never heard that version before. So as the song evolves, or as the song evolves to the dance floor, you evolve it on the radio, make it different, mm-hmm. but you lessen it in rotation. Yeah. And the reason for that is there's constantly new music coming, right? And your rhythmic's had their shot, And you're waiting for that next rhythmic song. And yeah, you mix it in every now and then. But I think that's the way you differentiate it. You actually put a different version of the song Mm -hmm. in there. Because there's a lot of versions. Think about, you know, Jelly Bean and all those remixes. You know, Giorgio Morota the people that would take a song and make it into an enhanced version of what we heard. You know, just elevating the sound of it. I enjoy listening to U2X Radio and some of the remixes you hear there. uh, Especially the gentleman from Manchester, Paul Oakenfold. Oh,
1: love his mixes. Holy
2: smokes. Is he unbelievable or what? Mm -hmm. I mean, he has been doing remixes for YouTube for a number of years, but the fact he does this one hour show called discotheque and it always debuts like Friday night at seven o'clock on 32 and u 2 X radio. And what he does, he like, he mixes in Motown and yet the beat never leaves and how he gets the vocal to the point and he's driving it and he's driving it. And I just think he's brilliant. But, you know, I could never do what what he does. Yeah. And um, he's probably one of the best DJs in the world right now.
1: I agree. I, his mixes. And I love how he, it's his stamp. You know it's him.
2: Yes, exactly. On, on
1: his remixes. You just...
2: And then his voice comes in.
1: Hey, Paul Algenfolder. <laughs> 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 Stick to mixing.
0: <laughs> it's his mixing we love. Next on this list is a guy who had uh, two jobs in 1985. This, uh, this is the Boomtown Rats. The song is called Dave. However... It was also called Rain. There's what did you what did LIR play? And do you know do you know this story between Rain and Dave? And if you'd like to, you can share it.
2: (laughs) The story I remember is the song was really about the band's sax player David McHale. So this was on their sixth album, which was in a long glass. And somehow they re-recorded it in the United States and called it Rain. I'm not quite sure what Johnny Fingers and Bob Geldof was thinking when they re-recorded it. I don't know if Dave was pissed off it was called, Dave. <laughs> I don't know how it evolved from Dave to Rain, but it is a very quirky song, isn't it? Yeah. It's not a song we played that often, quite frankly, but it is a really good song. So do you know the story about why it was re-recorded for the U.S.?
0: From what I've read, it has to do with they, they thought maybe he was speaking to a gay relationship or something. Like, you don't sing a love song to Dave. Why is this man singing to Dave? And oh, so I they changed. That so that, so that's that's what I read. But I mean, I was looking through the lyrics, and it doesn't seem that way. I really don't know the the full story behind it. But it does seem odd that Dave and Rain. I guess I can go by Rain from now on, Just Rain Sloan.
2: 1985 I mean Geldof had two hats he, he was doing you know the whole live aid band-aid project and he was trying to keep his Irish band going at the same time plus he was acting too if you remember that I remember he came on the air with us at LIR and he was talking about I can't remember the movie that it was in but he was saying how
0: it wasn't the wall he was, was it
2: driven down these castle steps and it was cold and his nipples were getting scratched on the stone surface and he was freezing and i'm like holy crap who would <laughs> want to do that you know but
0: it must have been for pink floyd's the wall right i, I don't know any other movie that he
2: oh, did that's probably right yeah pink floyd oh, the yeah. wall i forgot about that um, you know it's interesting i actually saw the wall at the nassau coliseum if you remember oh um, you got to based go, uh, on the film there were five performances at the yeah. nassau coliseum on long island there were seven two performances at the Forum in L.A. Sports Arena. One, the it's, Sports Arena. Yes, the, and I went to night number one. And here's here's an interesting LIR twist to the whole thing. So I went to the first night. I was with a bunch of friends. I had to, take, and I I was amazed because this is I think one of the first computer generated concerts that were ever produced. I mean, the fact that they took a real plane and crashed it on the side me. of the stage, and how the roadies, unlike when I saw Roger Waters do The Wall. 30 years later, they the roadies built these styrofoam white styrofoam bricks to the top of the ceiling of the Coliseum, you know, which they didn't do in the in the remake. I mean, and and it's amazing how the first half of the show ended when they got the last brick up. So it went into an, an intermission, and I heard over the PA system, well, Mike Wadati please come to stage left. Now, Mike Wadati is the chief engineer of LIR, and I knew he was not there. Bob, he was also in my wedding party. So he's a very, very dear friend of mine. And I went to stage left, and there's a guy, and he, he looks freaked out. And I said, Are you looking for Mike Waddad? He goes, Are you Mike? I said, No, Mike's not here. I work with, uh, I work with Mike. He's the chief engineer at LIR. I know how to get a hold of him. Great. He sticks this backstage pass on me. I go into the operations center, and I could see one of the roadies trying to explain the problem of what was happening to Roger Waters. And what had happened was with the conversion of 110 to 220, they didn't account for, it was an electrical thing. The whole system went down, and they couldn't figure out how to start the second half of the show. So I get Mike on the phone, and Mike goes, yeah, I can help you with this. And he talks the crew through the issue. It was an electrical problem, and they got it back. And as a thank you, I don't know what would have happened with the second half of the show, not that I say today But they let me hold my backstage pass, which to this day I still have because I collect Mm. backstage passes. And they let me stay on the side of the stage. So now I watch this show from the side looking out towards the crowd, which is a beautiful thing to watch because you see these faces of awe when they're doing, Mm. you know, like the second half of the wall, which was an amazing. And I could understand why they couldn't take this across the country. It was an extensive proposition and the most innovative show I've ever seen in my life. But that was the L.I.R. twist to it. Love Mike Wadati, the chief engineer of L.I.R., saves the day.
1: <laughs> Actually, you saved the day because mm. if you hadn't spoken up, yeah, you do know what I happened.
2: Mean, you know, I mean, this was what, 1980? Yeah, it was Is 1980. Yeah. That's was it, it 1980? Yeah. So I still have it. I collect the backstage passes of bands that I've introduced over the years in a box. I just kind of. And it's then when they box. did the 30th anniversary, I wore this thing around like oh. I was <laughs> still in <on the> backstage. <laughs> back. I took it. My friend's like, hey, man, that's pretty cool.
0: Let's go to ninety-three. Let's keep let's keep it moving. Here we got. Uh, this is the one that you don't know that you said, but and Holly is filled with knowledge of living daylight. Um, <laughs>
2: Holly, you got to enlighten us. This is the,
0: the song is Colleen, and uh, yeah, number ninety-three. Tell us about living daylight, won't you?
1: I didn't remember. I hadn't really remembered them, but Rusty Anderson. Has been playing guitar for Russie Anderson was the guitarist in Living Daylights, the most prominent instrument, I guess you would say. He's been playing guitar with Paul McCartney for twenty years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I don't. And I don't know this. I mean, I don't know much else about the band. But we do know. We reached out to somebody who we found out as we were trying to research the band, or as we were trying to to gather information. An old friend of ours uh, did a remix. Happened to have done a remix back in the 80s of this song.
2: So I, know. I saw a remix on YouTube. It was from 1983. Is that the remix? It,
0: it probably is. So, Swedish Chris is the person that we've, that's a friend of ours. It
1: our was sh- Eagle. It was Swedish Eagle and oh, Chris. Swedish Eagle.
2: Yeah. 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 Eagle. Was- my brother from Another Mother. Yeah. yeah.
0: Is Eagle. Is Eagle still, and- he's still at Sirius. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah.
2: on, he's on every night after Richard. So, I'm on, you know, 5 a.m. to 9 a.m., Monday through Friday, Saturday. And then um, Richard, well, Doug the Slug is on, right? from... Yeah. Mm-hmm. from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Richard's on from 3 p.m. Eastern to 9 p.m. Eastern and then Eagle's on from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. Eastern and then he does a Sunday Mm -hmm. show so uh yeah Eagle is great he is so talented and if anybody would know it's Richard and it would be Eagle for sure I'll lean on that remix you know it's an interesting (laughs) fact about Richard Blade and Swedish Eagle in Richard's book which is called World in My Eyes in the chapter where he comes to the United States from England Eagles coming on the same exact day from Sweden and they both land at LAX on the same day within an hour of each other in 1976. What's the chances of that? That's crazy. The same hour.
0: All right, so let's move from Living Daylight. Talk about pivots. This is the first solo album from Sting, uh, Dream of the Blue Turtles. Mm -hmm. This is the first of two songs that K-Rock has on this list. Uh, It's Love is the Seventh Wave. Uh, This is not a police song. This is a is it jazz? It's adult. Again, we're moving, 1985 is the year that, that Alt-Rock is growing up and they're starting to to play to, uh, to an older crowd.
1: So what did LAR feel about this at the time?
2: Oh, we loved the song. I mean, so this was, as to your point, right? It was Sting's first solo album. It was the second single off the album. And no, it wasn't The Police, but there is a reference to The Police at the end of the song when the song's sure. fading. You hear him say, every breath you take, every move you make. Right? So yeah. there's a reference to a, a police song right there at the end of the song. And um, isn't, it, isn't it interesting that here now, this was the beginning of the catalog for Sting, and now Sting has sold his catalog to Universal yeah. for over $250 million. And it all started right here on the second song, on the second single from the album, uh, Love is a Seventh Wave, which I had to look up the definition of Seventh Wave. So did you know Seventh Wave is the highest swell of the sea so when you have swells and waves the highest one you can possibly have is the seventh wave it's the highest swell at sea which i thought how about that? that's probably the pinnacle of love right yeah. where the peak of love could possibly well, well, be
0: look at that look at you doing your research and, and, hey. and explaining this song so i love it
2: yeah well that makes the video sense. had nice animation to it too you notice the yeah. animation with sting yeah. in it and uh uh, you know, it was a little silly. I, th- I thought, but um, but it was Sting, and uh, it's interesting too. I I interviewed Sting. I remember in the solo period in 1990. In fact, Sting was up in the Sirius XM studios, and I had a picture of it on my iPad. I was backstage. He just got over the flu, and he, you see, he's drinking tea. And I'm, intervie- I'm interviewing him live on the air. And one of my DJs, fellow DJs, Matt Cord, is actually doing like the recording of it while I'm on the air live with Sting. I show it to Sting. goes, Larry, I remember that night. And the reason I remember that night at the Nassau Coliseum is that's the first time I ever met Billy Joel. He said, Billy Joel came backstage to meet me. So he actually remembered, you know, the interview and in, in that night. So um, is
0: St. Billy John's. Joel like the, the king of Long Island? Does he like rule over that land? Yes. That's how I imagine. Yes, he does. Okay. All right. I gotcha.
2: <laughs> Wait, go back to that story.
1: What okay. Yeah, sorry. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt.
2: No, no. So I went to St. John's University and my friend Kathy... Uh, married Kim Turner. Kim Turner was one of the three managers of the police. It was yeah. actually Ian Copeland, Miles Copeland, and Kim Turner. Kim's a guy. And of course I'm invited to the wedding. And Sting was doing his first movie. It was not there. It's the only time in my life I saw someone have two best men. So Kim had both Andy and Stuart as best men at the wedding. And I remember it was mm-hmm. at the Mildred Cottage in Hicksville, New York. I remember that they had a band that they hired. When the band took a break, I remember seeing Stuart go to the drums, Andy went to the guitar, and Ian Copeland took the bass, and they started doing Beatles covers, <laughs> to which the entire kitchen staff came out and was like, holy shit, right. it's two thirds of the police, you know? <laughs> but Sting is a really nice down-to-earth guy, but isn't it interesting, it all started with Love is the Seventh Wave, and now the entire catalog has been sold to Universal for over $250 million. <laughs>
3: All the cities, all the nations, everything that falls your way, I see. There is a deeper world than this that you don't understand. There is a deeper world than this talking at your head.
0: So, okay. So you started in 80s. So there, there were no computers. Did you have, was it a card system? What, uh, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay.
2: It was a card system, but we see, we had the freedom to play what we wanted to play. You know, we were required to play X number of new songs an hour. Um, but most of the songs we were playing were new anyway. But we played what we wanted to play. When I left WDRE, which was the later version of L I R, at one point they handed me a playlist and I said to my wife, I'm done. How is that? This is not fun anymore. When it's not fun, you just don't do it anymore. You know? Now it's fun. Yeah. Because I enjoy it, you know, yeah. and I don't have to deal with the politics of Earl. what I had to deal with in terrestrial radio. Because, you know, everyone at Sirius is just wonderful. 19 years, you know, I, I'll be there for another 20 Wait, or 30.
0: Oh, so you were there at the very beginning or what was it? Did you yeah. start at Sirius or at, what was it? CD radio? Isn't that what it started out as? or something?
2: It started as CD radio. You're right. Yeah. And then actually speaking of Sting, they did a rebranding celebration concert at the Beacon Theater with Sting where they announced that it was going from CD radio to Sirius. So I was hired to be Sirius. Sirius launched, this is a fact, on Valentine's Day 2002. I joined in May of 2003, so basically 15 months later. Yeah. With the merger, I didn't know what was going to happen, right, Sirius and XM, because they had a channel on XM called Fred, and that's how it was branded. But they ended up not having Fred anymore, and they kept us, and they crossed us over. So when I started at Sirius, I was on channel 22, and then it became Sirius 22 XM 44. Then they did a realignment of all the channels, and they put us right there at 33, right in the middle. So, um, I guess yeah, I survived. That's, you know, it's a good place to be. You here. don't know where it's going to go with a merger. You don't know, but you know it was a wonderful thing and the synergy. And now we have Pandora, so it's Sirius XM Pandora, which is a great thing too. So uh, yeah, it's been 19 years. I like how you
0: I like how you think we're right in the center. Like you're not, we're no longer left of the dial. <laughs> we are right in the center. We're like 100.
2: <laughs> 22.
3: between yeah. between, between, between be 22 Suzanne and Vega. 44 left
2: of center. That's what I want to be. Yeah, yeah. There, there. You, you always want to be left of center. You always want to be a rebel. You know you. That's the thing about radio, right? You want to be the rebel. You want to be the hip one. You want to be not the one that's vanilla, homogenous. You know, just doing the same old stuff playing the same old songs you know you want to you want to be radical and what did we do at lr we're dropping movie drop-ins in between songs Mm -hmm. things that was were thematic to the song itself we were putting cartoon jingles in there you know whatever made sense you know i love party out of bounds that was the friday night show that we did we kicked it off with the b52s to inaugurate it and it was like anything we threw the kitchen sink in you know someone would go (laughs) hey man that song sucks. Yeah, well, you suck. You're dismissed. You know, you hit yeah. the button, you just keep going. You know, I'd be talking over songs and lyrics, but we're the color and the flavor. Otherwise, we're right. a jukebox, right? We just keep hitting right, the right. buttons all the time. Exactly. So our job is to entertain, to inform, but it's not about us. It's about the song. And you have to get into the song mentality and move on. Edit your thoughts and move on. That's the key to radio.
1: But I think people are listening now. I mean, the color that you're adding is valuable to the people who are listening to the station. You know, they want to hear the stories.
2: That's true, Holly. Yeah. They do, because you can't find the stories, really. Except if you go to a yeah. podcast like here. And sometimes yeah. you got to dig to find the nugget to find the story. But because Richard lived it and breathed it, because Eagle lived it and breathed it, Doug lived it and breathed it, I did. You know, uh, Dave Kendall was on MTV. You know, mm-hmm. he does the Friday Night Party show. You know, Darren Smith, Matt Sebastian in Denver, you know, doing Dark Wave, which is three hours of goth, yeah. industrial and more. <laughs> I mean, he goes deep. I mean, that's about as dark a place as you're going to go. (laughs) You know, it's like, you always wonder what Stephen King's childhood was like. And that's a great guy. He's a great guy. So we all lived it and breathed it. I think they just want to kind of, just for maybe 20 minutes, relive it, go to their real world, come back to it. But I try to keep it relevant to the day and not like yesterday, yesterday, yesterday. You know, because we all have memories of yesterday, yesterday, yesterday.
0: (laughs) All right. Got to kind of wrap it up a little bit. Let's talk America. This is... Prince and the Revolution. This was another pivot by Prince. He's not doing pop songs. He's discovered the Beatles and Sergeant Pepper and suddenly uh, he's dressed in Paisley, but still with the Revolution, still a lot of fun. Were were you guys on Purple Rain and then onto Paisley Park?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because with, let's start with Purple Rain. So two different perspectives of Prince. So we actually did a contest where I took a listener and a guest to see the Purple Rain tour in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Oh. And I have to tell you, Prince is a musician, is a genius, as a live act, unbelievable. And I also remember that I went to the Ritz to see Sheila E. And we used to play Erotic City. And Sheila E. is performing. And for the encore, Prince comes out, place goes nuts. And they do a 20-minute version of Erotic City, yeah. which was stunning. Uh-huh. It was in 1984. So that period was wonderful. But then when you got to Paisley Park, and and certainly – you think about you mentioning like a beatles influence like raspberry beret right you think about america and the direction that he was going and the synergy between guitar synthesizer and sax and what he was doing with that song. it's a great live version of that on youtube which is like almost 10 minutes long yeah yeah so it's a great like erotic city for 20 minutes america for like 10 minutes and you had a song like america you know prince has got this fear about pending nuclear war, because that's what the eighties was all about. Like Frankie goes to Hollywood and two tribes, two huge countries possibly going to war and God forbid it's a nuclear war. And he he was afraid of that, you know? It was actually the last single in 1985 when America came out, you know, around the world in a day and that period of time for Prince and the revolution. And, you know, I can remember Prince being on Saturday Night Live and it's almost like he couldn't miss a beat. For some reason he was playing guitar and his guitar chord came out of his guitar. And he just so coolly was able to grab this thing and put it back in and not miss anything on the stret. It was like, who does that? You know, it's like yeah. what kind of musician plays all these instruments and he does it by ear? But seeing him in the Superdome oh, sold right. out yeah. on the Purple Rain tour was just amazing, you know. And then you see the songs like You Got the Look, you know, the great videos that he put out with that band was so tight as a drum. And male, female, you know, just diversity. You know, he just struck a chord with us, you know. But that 20-minute version of Erotic City at the Ritz, holy
0: moly. <laughs> Still remember that, yeah.
2: It just doesn't, it doesn't go away. You know, a great song is a great song is a great song. And we'll go deeper. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. We would avoid the, the obvious and go to the unobvious. And um, some of the older records you would have seen at LIR because the jackets would have had promotional stickers along the bottom. And what the jocks would do is they would put their initials next to a song that they liked. And that was kind of like a badge of honor. So if you saw LRD, that was me, Lawrence Robert Dunn Duck. <laughs> You know, LRD <laughs> was my initials and um, I don't know where those records exist today but you know, I think back to those early days of Prince and you know and those days too you have to remember as a music director we were criticized for not playing diversity in radio think about it right you know there were rock yeah. stations that well, we play Santana we played Jimi Hendrix no where is the true diversity in sound and that was a raging controversy during that time you know and we were playing bands like the specials you know, free Nelson Mandela. You know, we were yeah. playing songs that made sense in terms of culturally where we were from a sociological point of view. There were things in the world with Nelson Mandela that was not right, you know, and there were songs being written about him and we would play it and the audience would react to it. They would rebel to it. They would embrace it. Yeah. You know, that's just the way they embrace Live Aid. Too much, to and, and the AIDS movement too, you know, I remember we did, what was the campaign we did for HIV, for AIDS? Oh, people with AIDS don't lose their humanity. They lose their immunity. And that was something that we used to play during the height of the AIDS epidemic once an hour, hmm. a quick seven seconds, just to kind of reinforce you know, the bias that was out there, the the fear that was out there, the misperceptions that were out there. It was an interesting time in the 80s when you think about it. And yet it was such a pivot in music. It was such a time that I don't think you can ever replace it. And I think people always think back to that time as the most special. And in, in six weeks, I'll be getting on the eighties cruise again. We are going to see this will be the second time that I'll be hosting the eighties cruise along with um, Mark Goodman and Nina Blackwood, Alan Hunter and Laurie Majewski. We're the, the five hosts of 4,200 crazies <laughs> sold out on a boat. And um, it's the human League who I haven't seen in concert in 10 years, ABC. You know, Berlin is, Terry and, and Berlin have been on the cruise since it started six years ago. They've been on every year. It's just an amazing, amazing time. And people just want to go back and relive it because they can't let go. And they won't let yeah. go. And I don't blame them. I don't let go. Yeah. I'm still doing this. I'm having fun. And I'll keep yeah. doing it until I'm having fun. Until I drop dead. Dead duck. It, uh, oh.
0: <laughs> don't. Well, okay. Well, I, I hope uh, I hope all goes well on this 80s cruise. It, it should be. Um, yeah. Uh, oh,
2: it
1: looks amazing. It looks Really fun. Yeah,
2: I mean, there's 23 bands, and uh, we all have, like, our own tasks to do. Like, um, when I was out the last time, I did the Hollywood Squares. I had the winning square. Nice. I was sitting under Terry Nunn. Terry had the Paul Lynn Middle Square. And the winning <laughs> question, which they threw to me, and I had no idea, they said, the Olympic logo, what color is the top left ring of the Olympic logo? And I said, it is blue. And the winner go and the um, the contestant from the crowd says, I agree with Larry. And then it said, well, you just won the game. And then Nina Blackwood leans to me. How'd you know it was blue? I said, "Nina, I didn't know. I guessed, <laughs> I guessed it was blue. And we had such a great time. Those are the kind of things that we do on the cruise. You know, we, do, we just have a lot of fun. Well, that sounds great. But I want to thank the both of you, Holly and Dave for having me. Thank you so much. Well, it was th- so
1: nice meeting you. Thank you so much for doing this. This was so, so great.
2: We'll
0: have you back soon. I hope. Thank you for having me. All right. Take have care. You. Okay. 1985 songs 100 to 91 that k-rock played back in 1985 did you enjoy that little trip down memory
1: not only did i love the music we discovered some songs that we didn't necessarily remember like some songs from like colleen from the living daylight and that phil collins was actually played on k-rock back in the day but also hearing larry's stories about all the artists and the concert he saw back then from his New York perspective. Great, really fun to hear some of his stories.
0: Oh, and in, indeed, we've talked to people on the on the West Coast, so it's nice to get the East Coast perspective. Maybe one day we'll, we'll go in the Midwest and see what's going on in there, or we'll, 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 we'll vary <laughs> it up, because new episodes every Friday, so uh, please subscribe so you get to hear all the songs and our special guests. And you get to hear the insights Holly brings to each episode.
1: (laughs) Such as they are and yours. And please check us out on social media, WDDIM podcast, and also on YouTube where you'll find outtakes from our talk with Larry. And he has plenty of stories to tell. Some you will not hear on the podcast and only on YouTube. So check us out.
0: And definitely subscribe. Okay. So until next week, this is Dave.
1: This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.
3: Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a 3-in-1 formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs, while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up
0: some at Walmart today. See
3: safely on the road when you apply a little splash.
1: As a new Western Union customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee on your first international online money transfer send money to your loved ones back home the fast easy and reliable way visit westernunion.com or download their app today to get started and your first transfer fee is free services offered by western union financial services inc nmls 906983 or western union international services llc nmls nine zero six nine eight five. fx gain supply